0: Welcome back. I'm Jared Johnson, ready to share some more provocative thinking about building the healthcare of tomorrow. This season, we're attempting the deepest dive that's ever been done on the disruptive organizations that are likely to impact the experience of healthcare consumers for years to come. For more provocative thinking, we hope you'll follow us and check out our previous episodes, all 200 of them. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. So here's what's going to go down today. We have the flavor of the Week about hospitals plan B. How is Paul Keckley urging hospital boards and C-suites to change course? And how does it impact the critical business components of consumer transformation? I'll talk about that. Then we continue our focus on payviders by welcoming veteran consultant Jeff Goldsmith. Jeff is in the house to dive deeper on the United Healthcare Optum conglomerate. From their blueprint for building consumer-first services to the players that they don't consider to be their competitors. It's time for some truth bombs and it all starts now. It's time to dive right in. Are you ready? Let's go. Flavor of the week. It's time for hospitals to implement plan B. That's what well-known policy consultant Paul Keckley titled the July 11th Keckley Report. And if you think he doesn't normally hold back, he's been kicking it up to a whole new level lately. Here's an excerpt. The definition of insanity is doing the same things over and over and expecting different results. That's exactly how many hospitals are addressing the storm clouds. Plan A is the formula that's worked in the past. Cut operating costs, add ancillary services, raise prices and keep them hidden, merge, outsource, blame insurers, blame the government— blame private equity, and play the victim card. Historically, hospitals implemented Plan A, balancing their obligations to their lenders, investors, trustees, medical staffs, and communities. But Plan A is a short-term solution. Plan B is a decidedly different future state for hospitals. Some will successfully pursue it. Others will elect to watch and wait. Plan B design features reflect three major changes. The integration of public health with health delivery, or regional systems of health. The integration of financing and delivery of care, or competing on prices and value and the integration of self-care in care management or the accountability for consumer behaviors. Paul then listed three questions that hospital boards and C-suites need to answer to pursue Plan B. One of those questions was, should our hospital transition to system of health or focus on executing Plan A more aggressively? Do market conditions warrant change? Are partners needed? Are competencies in the C-suite adequate? Are capital resources accessible? Is the culture change averse or welcoming? To which he then answered, most hospitals are ill-prepared to consider Plan B. Planning processes, lack of data, and board education are major hurdles. Plan A is a death spiral long term, a facility maximization strategy chasing marginal opportunities. It's time to stop the insanity and seriously pursue Plan B. So what about us? What do we think? And why does a show about consumer transformation talk so much about policy and organizational politics? Well, partially because we don't hear enough people talking about the critical business components of consumer transformation, such as experience, digital, economics, and marketing, and how they connect. And partially because we need more voices challenging the industry for the good of the industry. When you ask behind closed doors, progressive leaders at all seniority levels want and need help. And whenever Paul Keckley or other trusted sources talk about the future state of hospitals, we'd rather be informed about the possibilities than turn a blind eye. It may sound like a contradiction, but we want hospitals to thrive in a less hospital-centric future state that's happening right before our eyes. It's time to talk more about plan B for the critical business components of consumer transformation and then actually do something about it. That's another way that we'll build the healthcare of tomorrow. And that's the flavor of the week, the flow. All right, everyone, let's get into the flow. Give it up for Jeff Goldsmith. Jeff's the president of Health Futures Inc. He is a well-known fearless forecaster, a strategist, writer, keynote speaker, you name it. He wrote a piece on Medium that really attracted our attention that we'll be diving into here in a moment. And we've also got James Gardner here. Uh, Really excited to to have everyone here today. But first, Jeff, welcome to the Healthcare Wrap.
1: Hey, thanks, Jared. It's great to be with you.
0: And James, welcome back.
2: Good to hear you both. I'm excited to be here.
0: We're really excited to dive in deep with both of you, uh, Jeff. Let's start with this. What did I miss in your bio? So much, so many different directions we could go there. But what else would you like our listeners to know about you and your background?
1: I've worked in healthcare 46 years, believe it or not. I've been a strategy person inside an academic health center. I've been a a strategy consultant pretty much across the industry. Written four books, three of which were about healthcare. The most recent was a book called Digital Medicine of Relevance Here, Digital Medicine Implications for Healthcare Leaders, and also a piece on the radiology and uh, imaging business uh, called The Sorcerer's Apprentice. That came out in 2011, Johns Hopkins Press. Uh, or Oxford University Press, but I, you know, I've been writing and lecturing and investigating in the field for a very long time. I'm, I'm a forecaster, futurist is a little woo for me, but I'm really interested in where the health system is headed.
0: Uh, Jeff, one thing I found interesting as we were getting to know you a little bit better was the fact of how you, the window that you're looking at isn't just like what's right around the corner. You're factoring that in, but you are very clearly looking a few years ahead of that, 8 to 10 to 15 years ahead. I can't help but wonder as you've been doing that over the last, you know, after the last number of years, like and all the transformation that has taken place in the industry, something's got to have stood out. uh, Something that's been like, yeah, either I nailed that or like I saw that coming or I didn't see that coming, but I'm sure there's something in there that's just stuck out as you've been looking so far in the future over over these last number of years. Is there anything that, that you can point to that's like, yeah, that was one that was really clear to me that as it's been coming about, like you just saw it coming. I would imagine something's kind of stood out to you. I'll
1: give you a plus one and then a minus one, a big win and a big miss. I wrote a book in 1981 called Can Hospitals Survive? which basically predicted that the core business of hospitals at the time inpatient care would shrink significantly in the next 10 or 15 years. And I identified three factors. High tech uh, home care and what I called aftercare, the explosion in ambulatory imaging and surgery and the growth of managed care uh, that had as its principal purpose rationing hospital care and kind of challenged the industry to think about its business differently. So I feel really good about that. That was a, you know, in the subsequent six years, there was a 20 percent drop in inpatient admissions in the country, which was uh, pretty amazing. Uh, because everybody thought, you know, well, hospitals do more, they make more, they're incented to admit people, why would admissions fall? Well, it's because the world around them was changing. On the negative side, and I'm just writing a piece on this now, I have been stunned by the collapse of private medical practice. This was a arguably the most powerful institution in the health system it's just fallen apart here in the last 10 years, and seemingly at an accelerated pace. When I entered the field, the vast majority of practitioners were solo practitioners or partnership practitioners. There were actually prohibitions against corporations employing doctors. And yet, by you know 2022, a tiny fraction of practitioners are solo or partners. A huge percentage of them are now employed by hospitals or by large corporations owned by private equity firms. So that was a big miss.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing. I think, I think both of those really are telling of the underlying, the, the currents underlying even what's happening right up to the moment right now. And I think they, they are telling of trends that are not changing and we'll be keeping an eye on. And I will attempt to use that as a way to, uh, to transition over to our, our main topic here, because I think there's a lot of relation to what you just said to the article you just wrote on Medium about United Healthcare, and you titled it "United Healthcare: Anatomy of a Behemoth." I thought it's the most in-depth piece I can recall, maybe ever, about uh, the United slash Optum conglomerate, and not just their market presence, but like what does it tell us about them, about the consumers that they're trying to reach. I just found it fascinating, and if, if we can dive into that here for a moment, Jeff, I think a starting place for me i'd love to know what drove you to do this research in the first place like why what mm. attracted you to united and to focus on them this much
1: i've been a managed care advocate for most of my career because i felt that coordinated care that focused on patients was the right way for health the healthcare system to go and united health group was one of the first publicly traded corporate actors in the managed care business. You had a lot of nonprofit entities, notably Kaiser. But during the 70s and 80s, you had a surge of investment by the corporate world, by private equity firms, by venture capital firms in creating new managed care models. And United was one of those. So I've been interested in United for, oh, I don't know, 30 years. I've had a lot of friends in the company including in senior positions in the company. I've followed their trail of acquisitions closely. And I don't think people, a lot of my colleagues in the industry have the faintest idea of what these guys have done. So that was the purpose of writing the medium piece.
2: So Jeff, let me ask you if I could, how do you describe United to people from outside the industry or even people inside the industry? Who are they? What do they do? And why should people care?
1: United is a diversified managed care company. That's what I think their business is. Their core business is, is uh, managed health insurance. It's about $220 billion of the $287 billion in revenues that they had last year. But as the company has grown, it has acquired pieces of the care system, and it's also acquired a lot of infrastructure capabilities that they've kind of piled up in a subsidiary of the company called Optum Insight. I would characterize it as a diversified managed care company. From a structural standpoint, the company is a very successful roll-up of other companies. Uh, They have grown by acquisition over that nearly 45 years that they've been in business. And they're a very systematic and disciplined acquirer of other entities. When you look at the company, it's sort of a conglomerate. And Optum Health, which is where their non-health insurance businesses are, where a lot of the focus was in my essay, is sort of a conglomerate inside a conglomerate. They are businesses that are related to health insurance, but they're not directly related to health insurance. So give us some
2: shock and odd numbers, because you, you tossed around $200 plus billion, which alone is a staggering, staggering number, eclipses the sizes of, of most Health systems as as we know them, but what else is like a shock and awe kind of statistic from the the research you did?
1: Well, a couple of them they're bigger and wealthier in terms of deployable assets than Exxon, Mobil. So just to put it in in some perspective, they also, until the pandemic, were out earning Amazon on half the revenues. I thought those two things were kind of shock and awe. I actually had a slide in one of my talks that showed, I mean, Amazon's earnings blew out during the pandemic. So, you know, they way out earned United during the pandemic, but now they've fallen back. But you go back over 10 years and United has been a consistent earnings generator and significantly greater earnings than Amazon that everybody thinks is going to revolutionize healthcare.
2: Help us understand. Are they to a typical health system? Are they a friend, a foe, or both? And how can that be at the same time?
1: I mean, the core business, I think if you ask them, they would say, our core business is trying to wring value out of the healthcare dollar. And they do that by putting immense pressure on the care system, on hospitals, physicians, and other actors in the care system. So in that sense, the core business of United is not friendly to the care system at all. It is a formidable adversary. But as the company has grown, it has acquired businesses that deliver services to United's competitors. And it's also acquired businesses that sell services to United's provider networks, consulting services, business intelligence services, and the like. So as the company has grown, the issue of who their customer is and what those customers want has become a lot more complex and arcane. And I think it's a very major management challenge to a very capable management in Minneapolis to sort all those roles out and to try and create value for united shareholders from all of those complex relationships.
2: And I guess that would lead to my last question before I head things back to um, Jared. Is this business model sustainable ultimately at at the size they're operating at does the healthcare system rise up in protest of of what seems like a very conflicted business model or does the government step in i love microsoft i love google and um try and tamp things down or does it go on and are they like one of the first 400 billion dollar players or 500 billion dollar players what see you jeff
1: I forecasted at the beginning of the decade that these guys would get to 10% of the health system by the end of the decade. Mm. You know, today that would be $420 billion, by then probably $600 billion. But I I think the problem is that many of their businesses have grown to a scale where to continue growing that business by acquisition does raise antitrust challenges. There were antitrust issues raised by their Acquisition of Change Healthcare, which is sort of a healthcare IT conglomerate, it was sort of the optimum of McKesson. And believe it or not, one of the owners of WebMD, one of the uh, darlings of the healthcare part of uh, the uh, dot-com boom, they were challenged by the Justice Department, I believe the Justice Department, over whether that acquisition would result in monopolizing healthcare claims processing software. And I don't believe the deal is yet closed. I think it would be very difficult for United to buy another large health insurer at this point, given the number of alarm bells that would go off in local markets. They combined the memberships of those organizations. I'm not an antitrust expert, but United is already the dominant actor in the Medicaid managed care market and the Medicare Advantage markets. So acquisitions that significantly grew either of those businesses would probably be bumping up against significant antitrust constraints. There's a lot of markets in which another large group practice acquisition would put them in a similar position. So I think they're, they're in a space where if they want to deploy 10 or $20 billion a year in acquisitions, they're going to find it trickier to find markets where they're not going to set off those spells. I think it's going to be very difficult for them to continue acquiring new businesses or, excuse me, existing businesses at the pace they have in the past.
0: Stay tuned for more provocative thinking after the break. Hey, listen up, y'all. Did you know that nearly 60% of people wish their healthcare provider sent them more relevant health information? And 42% would even consider switching to a different provider that sent them more, according to a recent survey of patients in the U.S. The vast majority of them would prefer to get that information via email or text. Persado is a natural language AI company that provides healthcare organizations with pre-developed, pre-optimized messaging journeys proven to build digital relationships, improve health goals, and increase patient retention. Deliver better health outcomes and revenue growth with Persado's data-driven content that inspires action. Visit persado.com to learn more. That's persado, P-E-R-S-A-D-O.com to find out how Persado can help. (laughs) Justin Knott here with the Patient Convert Podcast, your weekly dose of healthcare marketing growth strategies, co-hosted by Justin and Kelly Knott. This is perfect for physicians, practice owners, healthcare entrepreneurs, and healthcare executives. We are breaking down what practices and healthcare organizations should be doing to grow, reach and retain patients. There's so much confusion and so many options out there around what you should be focusing on to grow your practice. And we're breaking down each week, what really works. We're bringing real world application case studies and interviews from leading growth minded physicians and healthcare executives. So catch us weekly on your favorite listening platforms, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. Okay, back to the flow.
2: What advice would you offer our listeners, uh, Jeff, if they're faced with competition from UnitedHealth in their local markets? Befriend them, do business with them, or, or oh, I mean, put up, a, it, put up a wall and compete with them directly, or well, some combination I mean, of the two?
1: I think co is going to be the order of the day for many folks. I mean, if United owns the largest at-risk group practice in your community and you are the largest hospital, you and United have a very complex relationship. Um, right. There's a lot of ways in which provider organizations can work with United that benefit them, whether United's health insurance business is a very significant part of their own local market or not. So, I think people need to keep their eyes open and to look for collaboration opportunities, perhaps with a wary eye towards what that means two to five years from now.
0: You know, one application of all of this as we get over, and again, James and I continue to just kind of let it all soak in, like the magnitude of what United is, of the entire United Health group and all the different pieces. It takes a while to get through that and comprehend just how big it is. But then I think it leads me to this question of, like, what can they do with this? What benefit can there be to consumers? And I liken it to something like like Walmart in terms of their, their grocery pickup business. There were a very small number of entities that had the scale to make something like that work, to make the actual grocery pickup ability, which is, I don't think anyone would question that that is a consumer-first type of service business. In some ways, it's a loss leader in some aspects of it. But they have figured out how to make this like one of the most talked about, just how convenient Walmart just made it to get groceries. And in this busy world, there was, so there's this new super consumer centric offering that Walmart offers again there were only a very small handful of companies that could have done that and I liken that to something like you know does United Health's scale their magnitude their reach their membership does that position them to offer more consumer centric services as well I mean I don't know if there's something they're already doing or if it's just something that that I see like they're capable of. What do you think? Does it does it position them better to to make a better like consumeristic version of healthcare?
1: I think there's a couple of of entry points for that. One of them is that they've acquired some of the most sophisticated integrated multi specialty medical groups in the country. You know, some of the deals haven't closed yet. Uh, I don't think the Atrius acquisition in the Greater Boston area is closed. Davita Healthcare Partners, Reliant Healthcare, which is the former Fallon Clinic, I mean. If you've been around managed care for a while, these entities are spectacular managed care providers at local market level, not nationally. I mean, we're talking about on the ground here, which have developed ways of managing particularly older folks, particularly high risk uh, individuals in perhaps a better way than maybe less coordinated or less well-focused traditional uh, healthcare system would would use. One classic problem with managed care is that there were clusters of managed care, uh, very sophisticated managed care in Oregon, in California, and in Massachusetts and Minneapolis and rural Wisconsin and almost nowhere else. So, you know, the ability of, of this company to take the learnings of these mature entities and to to spread them across a very large care system that they now, I think would make a a big difference in people's lives. I think the other thing that you'll hear a lot more about, and I'm sure you've, you've done podcasts on this already, is the whole AI, big data, machine learning piece, where we've only begun to understand how population level health data can help us identify risk factors, can help us identify patterns of care, can help us identify specific individuals that have a problem before they arrive in the emergency room and to use sophisticated communication strategies and caregivers to try and create a different future for those folks. If I were putting myself in United's shoes, taking the learning from these mature, sophisticated multi-specialty groups and taking the learning from this immense uh, database of claims history and uh, health experience of you know the 20 million or so people that Optum Health takes care of, I think those are the two areas that have really revolutionary potential and that I know they're going to be investing in uh, going forward.
0: I love it. I think this is so important for us to understand. I know from my standpoint, coming from a marketing and engagement background for so many years, I didn't understand enough about the business model that was underlying any type of experience that a consumer was encountering as they were engaging with with the healthcare entity that I was working for at the time and I wished I had. And so I feel like this type of information it's invaluable because when we understand the big picture of what's happening underneath what the business model is, how it's driving people, it actually makes it a lot easier to understand the consumers that we're trying to target. And so, I've always thought there's there's a bigger connection there than I realized. If I may indulge uh, ourselves here for a, for a couple moments, Jeff, <laughs> while we've got you here for these last couple minutes, I wonder if we could broaden out the scope uh, beyond United. And just ask, what trends are you generally paying attention to in the industry right now? Like, are there, what's in the middle of your radar screen right now?
1: I mean, believe it or not, one of the things that differentiates me from some of the colleagues that, you know, my colleague futurist is that I'm really interested in the underlying science. That was an advantage of being in a medical school environment because I got to ask a lot of stupid questions of really sophisticated scientists. I am fascinated by what is going on in neuroscience right now and in the, the potential for understanding and mastering both the degenerative diseases of the nervous system and some of the really scary, uh, big psychiatric illnesses like schizophrenia. I read avidly in this space and am really excited about some of the stuff that I'm learning about the role of inflammation in all of those diseases and the role of autoimmune processes in the degenerative part of those diseases. So that's something I'm really interested in and, and working on. Roll back... Towards the present, I'm working on a piece right now on this, what happens to the healthcare system when the COVID emergency expires. Mm. I don't think people really have a complete grasp of how much risk there is for care providers and insurers in shrinking back this enormous Medicaid program that we got out of the emergency. Believe it or not, there's like 87 million people in the Medicaid program right now, 87 million It's 26% of the U.S. population. 20 million of those people would probably not be in the Medicaid program if you assessed their eligibility today based on their current circumstances. What the COVID emergency did is it basically prevented states from recertifying people that, you know, maybe they got a job or, you know, their income increased or something changed. So I'm really interested in this COVID emergency transition. You probably know that, you know, the number of people that got coverage under the health exchanges that were created by Obamacare went up by 40%. That could go right back down again if Congress Congress doesn't continue uh, the enhanced subsidies that were provided to people to enroll in the exchanges. Just one other one. I don't mean to bore you guys with this, but There is a, you know, the whole telehealth explosion was premised on creating a Medicare payment and loosening a lot of restrictions on Medicare payment for telehealth. If those go away, it will have a significant effect on the telehealth industry. And there's a tremendous amount of lobbying going on in that space. So, I mean, there are a whole bunch of things that are kind of up in the air right now that the Biden administration candidly could fumble. And the consequences of that fumbling could be tremendously damaging to the care system. Oh, and by the way, if the number of folks in Medicaid shrinks by 20%, guess what happens to the Medicaid managed care business of all these publicly traded entities like United and Centene and Molina and all the rest of it? So 20% shrinkage in their enrollment would drop their revenues and profits. So there's a ton of of stuff related to this post-COVID world that we're still not quite in yet that I'm, I'm watching and tracking, and I'm working on a piece on that right now.
2: Jeff, if I can ask, are you also tracking um, CVS Aetna, Walmart, Amazon, and some of the other disruptors that Jared and I sometimes talk about?
1: Yeah, I am. What are your thoughts? I'm, I'm honestly pretty skeptical about most of them. Believe it or not, CVS Aetna is actually bigger than United. At least it was... I think 7 or 8 billion larger than than United was at the end of fiscal 21 the differential rate of growth uh, they're probably about the same uh, but United's health insurance business is triple that of Aetna and United has a far more significant direct care delivery footprint than than uh, than CVS Aetna does I think of all the ones you mentioned I've been waiting for Walmart's to kind of shake off its swoon in healthcare and get moving I get my healthcare. I get a lot of my healthcare at Walmart. I got my boosters, my COVID boosters at Walmart. I'm there a couple of times a week. But for the life of me, uh, they seem to have had difficulty getting traction in this space. Amazon, I must tell you, I know they're going to attempt to grow multiple businesses in this space. I am really skeptical of their ability to do it. It's not clear to me what other than their name differentiates them from the other providers of telehealth services or, you know, the other providers of, you know, mail order pharmacy. I'm a real skeptic about about Amazon as a company, not just to their transformative potential for this field. I'd be happy to talk more about that.
2: Thank you for that. Jared, we'll be talking about Walmart and CVS in coming episodes, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah, that's very true. And I really respect that because I think the fact is that if any of these entities had figured it out yet, they haven't totally shown it. I think there's a lot of experimentation still going on. And I think there are going to be a lot of fumbles to your point. From this point on, we've seen some successes and some limited It's definitely some failures. (laughs) So I think it's worth pointing out that that there's a lot for for these guys to figure out yet. So Jeff, this has been so insightful. You've given us so much to think about. What if our listeners, if they want to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: I have uh, an ancient Jules Verne themed website, (laughs) www.healthfutures.net. That's the best way to reach me. I'm also on LinkedIn as Jeff Goldsmith. There's a bunch of Jeff Goldsmiths, but I guess Jeff C. Goldsmiths, something like that. I'm, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn.
0: Yes, so. you are. Uh, it's, it's fabulous. And now I'm going to be checking out the website even more. That sounds awesome. So thanks so much for giving us a few minutes and uh, best of luck. We can't wait to keep following what you've got going on from here on out. Thanks so much. Thanks again.